Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, um, July the 18th, 2023. Interesting piece in the Financial Times this morning about uh, United Airlines and Newark. Uh, United Airlines made a huge bet on Newark Airport and it's not paying off. I was in Newark last week on a very, very cramped United flight, which was supposed to be going to Chicago and got diverted to Indianapolis. All the charms of flying in America in the 2020s, of course, um, is not very charming, and it makes one perhaps a little bit nostalgic for a previous age, the previous age of dirigibles, of those uh, lighter-than-air aircrafts, those uh, airships like the Hindenburg and the Zeppelins, which flew around in the 1920s, where they had a huge amount of space. Another example of these airships was a British-made one, the R101. Very glamorous. I'd never heard of it. There's a new book out about the R101. Um, His Majesty's Airship, The Life and Tragic Death of the World's Largest Flying Machine. It's written by S.C. Gwynn, uh, who is based in Austin, a very hot Austin. And uh, Sam is joining us from there. Sam, congratulations on the new book. Um, I have to admit, even though I'm English, I'd never heard of the R101. Is there a reason for that? It's a huge story in a way in the 20s um, yes, and early 30s, but it's been conveniently forgotten by the Brits. It has. It's interesting. It's been overwritten to some extent by, by other history. Um, it's been overwritten, I think. The, the Hindenburg kind of overwrote everything. I mean, it's the only airship. And we're talking here rigid airships. These are things covered with, you know, uh, cotton, but built of steel structures. They're not blimps like the Goodyear blimp, which is just a balloon. Anyway, what what uh, the Hindenburg in 1937, seven years after the crash of the airship that I wrote about, I think because we had the tw- 30 seconds of film on it kind of dominated. But also, you know, airships lost the race with heavier than air aircraft like airplanes, uh, a race that was pretty much, uh, you know, well joined, you know, in the in the early 20th century, but they lost the race and heavier than air, you know, by 1940, essentially the 40 year era of the big airships, the big rigids was over. And uh, so, I mean, that's part of it, too. Uh, It is interesting that that R101 in particular, because when it went down in 1930, it was uh, seen as the greatest British national tragedy uh, since the Titanic, Uh, you know, quite apart from the the many individual tragedies of the war, but it was national mourning and Westminster was full and St. Paul's was full and there were, you know, half a million people in the streets at Whitehall. So it was uh, it was a big event in its day. But yes, and it's always one of the fun things as a writer anyway, is to be able to write about something that is one, a really good story and a much better story, if I may say so, than the Hindenburg ever was. And, do you know, deliver to a people who have never heard of it before. Well, the British always do stories better than the Germans, um, Sam. (laughs) Uh, John Lancaster, uh, who's an excellent writer and quite a tough reviewer, gave your book a very good review in the New York Times, suggesting that, like any good popular history, it's the portrait of an age. Tell us about the age which produced the R101. 
It's an interesting moment in history of, you know, airships, the, the, the kinds we're talking about, the rigid airships, the big ones were, were kind of invented by this guy named Count von Zeppelin in 1900. And they, um, they were produced by Germans for a long time. Eventually the British made some and the Americans uh, made some. Uh, but the era of airships was uh, defined as much as anything by what those Zeppelins did in World War One. They became the first world's first long range bombers, the world's first weapons of mass terror. The first things that kind of, you know, uh, let human beings know that they could be annihilated from above by something other than a thunderbolt. And uh, even though the Zeppelins w w turned out to be bad weapons of war, they terrorized Europe, seven cities of Europe, mostly London, mostly mostly London and other British cities. But um, yeah, well, just, just to jump in here, I mean, you use the word terrorize. The, the theory was worse than the practice, wasn't it? Well, far worse. Yes. Although no one knew that when they first when the first giant Zeppelins appeared over London, they always came at night, usually, you know, after midnight. You know, dropping bombs. Uh, you know, as it as it turns out, the uh, on people and they were called baby killers, and people ran screaming in the streets. And in fact, they did kill people, but uh, they were tremendously inefficient uh, weapons of war. And much of the time, you know, the bombs were being released on farmer farm fields because the German pilots didn't know where they were. Um, and on the other hand, it was yes, it was a. Uh, what were they doing when they were flying over London uh, during the First World War? They were just basically throwing bombs out. You got it. You are like, look over the edge and, and think that you see the Thames down there. In fact, you're seeing some other river somewhere else. But uh, yeah, and uh, releasing bombs. They killed, to put it into perspective, the, the total numbers of people killed by Zeppelins bombing uh, England were less than the numbers of people who died in the Lusitania. So it it wasn't you know, it, it didn't work that well, but they were nonetheless weapons of terror. And certainly compared to the, the mass slaughter uh, in France and Belgium at the Somme, I mean, it's... Oh, oh, not even... Yes, I mean, you know, when you think about... When R101 went down, I mean, there was, you know, 50, uh, 48 people died. I mean, was it 750,000? Yeah, I mean, 48 people were dying per minute on the Somme, probably. Yeah, so it was, it was a very different thing, but... Uh, Anyway, that, getting back to your question about the age, uh, you know, coming out of World War One, um, the as you know, the British Empire was the, bigger than ever before, uh, and now a quarter of the world's population. It was just absolutely enormous. It take it was off. rather like an airship, wasn't it? It was it all was, ready to to burst into flames. It was, and it it was starting to creak, you know, and then you had it had taken over a lot of the German lands, you know, and the and, and, and lands in Africa, and and so you had this kind of very large, uh, increasingly unwieldy empire with cracks showing, you know, Boer War and Irish Rebellion and Iraq Rebellion, and what was happening in India, as we know, would soon uh, change everything there. So there was a scheme hatched in. England in in uh, in in London uh, among the smart men there in the early 1920s and the scheme was called the Imperial Airship Scheme. Right. It was 1923, at least according to uh, got it. 1920. my uh, my trusted resource Wikipedia. And it, interestingly enough, it was um, it was initiated by the 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 Ramsay McDonald's Labour administration. Of course, quite different. The first Labour administration, I think, in British history. So. It was. It must have been seen as sort of an act of modernity. And that's a good way to put it. I mean, you, know, and, and you think of uh, 
you know, an imperial scheme does not necessarily go hand in hand with socialism. I mean, we, they're, they're not, you know, they, they can be opposing ideas too. But yes, yeah, so this idea came, what they were going to do was they were going to link the world, this, this massive world. I mean, we're stretching from you know, New Zealand to Canada to South Africa to, you know, Egypt. I mean, this was this massive British empire. And India, of course, which was always the jewel of the empire. The absolute jewel, 300 million people. And, uh, and they were going to link this empire together through the medium of the air. And they were going to do it with airships. And back in those days, you know, airplanes were, they were getting better at flying, but they didn't do well in long range travel. They had to, they had to land all the time. They were noisy and they were uncomfortable and airships potentially could have been the long range. Uh, and, and this was pre Lindenberg, of course, wasn't it? This is starts pre-Lindenburg, but it, it continues a little, a little bit post-Lindenburg. Lindenburg's 1927, and this, this scheme is hatched. And in some ways, Lindenburg, even though he proved you could fly across the Atlantic, he didn't prove that airplanes were going to be great for long-range travel. Um, anyway, so this idea persisted. They were going to link the world together, the medium of the air. British airships with British technology were going to be flying over, you know, from London to Karachi and London to... New York and Montreal and Toronto and all of and, and uh, Sydney and Auckland and all over the world. These these British and and they were going to be using. They, the British were thought they could perfect the imperfect German technology that had failed during the war, and they thought they could do this. And they were going to launch this scheme. And R one hundred one was the the guinea pig was going to prove that you could fly from London to Karachi, which was then in India, and back and do it and say, hey, this is the future. The future is for long range travel, not short range, was going to be airships. And this was going to be the new world. And moreover, it was going to be done with British technology, which was kind of on the wane. You know, if you think of the, the 19th century, you think of the, the pounding kind of greased piston, the engines better than anybody else and boats bigger and better and guns and, you know, the British empire built on that kind of technology. But by the way, um, Sam, and I apologize if I keep on jumping in here, did um, the defeat of Germany um, and obviously Versailles and then, and then Weimar, did it have an impact on German technology when it came to airships and, and the Zeppelin? Did they continue to develop this technology in the 20s or, or, or the British pretty much alone in development? Of it? The British were alone. And the reason, well, it was a little bit mixed later, but coming right out of the war, nobody wanted, I mean, allowing Germany to build Zeppelins, which had been bombing Europe for the entire war. Yeah. This is not so. So Versailles prohibited anything like that. Later, the Germans would kind of squirt through with a, you know, they, they would be able to build a couple of Zeppelins, but um, but nothing military. No, but the, the Versailles essentially treaty left the British momentarily kind of alone on the field with their schemes of how they were going to perfect this airship. The Americans had some ideas, too. But uh, anyway, that was what it looked like. And the 20s was, of course, I mean, in London, it wasn't quite the jazz age, but it still was an exciting period. It was it was a, a, a period of another when you when you look at what's going on, all these in capitals from Berlin to Paris to New York to London. I mean, it was all sorts of things going on and ideas being talked about and and the idea of an airship. These airships were astonishing to people. They were, you know, six, 700 feet long. I mean, they, they, 
they were they defied all gravity. That's if you're looking at R101, that's 777 feet long with 5.5 million cubic feet of uh, here's the 101. And then the uh, well, uh, how long was the Hindenburg, which eventually... uh, a little lo a little bit longer, about 800 plus. Um, yeah. But it was again, it was seven, seven years later. Uh, and uh, anyway, so this is a time of, of great experimentation and uh you know it, and great it, excitement um just just to, 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 to quantify this approximately sam comparing sailing a boat to karachi from london versus or from a an english seaport versus flying to karachi what was the what was the time difference? How long would it take? So one of the things that R101 with the, with the Imperial Airship Scheme was proposing to do was to was to shrink time and space in the empire. So London to Karachi, to answer your question, would go from 11 days to four. You know, from, you know, from Sydney to, uh, to London would go from a month to 11 days. I mean, mm. you're talking radical shifts in the way you... In, it, it, if you compress time, you compress distance, right? And uh, so when the premier of uh, Australia was going to the Imperial Conference in London. Now he was looking at less than two weeks um, by air as opposed to a month by boat. So these were radical proposals, but they also seemed to make sense as a new way of looking at the world. And was, um, was the technology profoundly flawed? I mean, yes. it's no secret that this thing crashed, which is the, the heart of your book, and we're going to get to that later. But was the technology in itself simply flawed? It was. And uh, it was, in a way, this is, a, my book is a history of a bad idea. And it's bad idea that- That's a great know, way of putting it. lasted longer than it should have. It's also a book about- Well, human there are lots of bad ideas. Uh, uh, <laughs> there are. Right. World is full of them. Uh, it's also a book about human folly, because when you persist with the bad idea against all of the evidence. So- if you look at the Hindenburg, the, you know, the, the famous footage that everyone knows, that is the hydrogen fireball. That's what happens when a spark of any kind hits hydrogen. And we see one there. There were 75 or 80 of them, I mean, that looked just like that, and including the R101. This was not uncommon. So hydrogen was a flaw, but it, it was only one flaw. When you put something up in the air that was six, seven, eight hundred feet long with a surface area of, let's say, five to six acres of cloth, it's just imagine if you've ever sailed a small sailboat, what happens when a big gust of wind hits the little sailboat? I mean, it, it, these things were extremely difficult to fly in wind in any kind of weather. They, they, they would rocket up 5,000 feet and shoot back down. They were sensitive to atmospheric changes, heat, atmospheric density, everything. They, they, you could not fly them near the ground in a wind. They'd be beaten to little pieces, which meant that if you were up in one during a storm, you could not go down it was impossible to go down. So you just had to flee from, there was a horrible story of the USS Akron, a helium filled American airship, trying to flee, flee from thunderstorms and eventually just getting put down into the ocean. But Sorry. there were many reasons they were very difficult to fly and navigate. And, uh, and I mean, hydrogen was just one of their problems. So it, it brings out the Captain Scott in the, uh, in the navigators. And there was a Scott and there's a Scott centrally in your story, a man called, Herbert Scott, of course, when Herbert we think Scott. of Scott, we think of Scott of the Antarctic. But yes. tell us about George Herbert Lucky Breeze Scott. Why is he such a quintessentially British character? And why, why is it hardly surprising that he shows up in this kind of narrative? 
Well, I tell you, so so uh, he is one of these characters in the book that uh, you were saying, why why has the R101 been forgotten? Well, we could ask the same question. Why has Herbert Scott been forgotten? Herbert Scott, in 1919, flying a, a basically a Zeppelin knockoff that had been built by the British on sort of stolen Zeppelin plans and things, flew this ship, um, the R-34, across the Atlantic and back, the first double crossing of the Atlantic. Oh, my God. No one had ever done that before. And he was, uh, you know, this is eight years before Lindbergh. Um, it was an astonishing feat of just daring. And he did it alone. So it's basically him in a balloon. Uh, no, it was it was him in a 500-foot airship with a crew of, I can't remember, 25 or something in, okay. this, in this airship. He was the pilot of it. And they flew it across the Atlantic and they flew it back and they had, they came so close so many times to going down. But, you know, here's the guy, the first double crossing of the Atlantic, the first, you know, Lindbergh went west east. That's the easy way. East west is the hard way. Uh, Scott was the first one to do that. So a, a, a major hero. Why is it hard? Why is it hard to go east west? Because you're going against the wind. Okay. But then you have to come back. You're right. You're going when you come back with the wind, as R as R thirty four did. It was a much easier flight um, than going against the. Wind. I guess Lindenberger. Did he go one way? Did he? Right. He, he only went. He went to Paris, and uh, and he went with the wind. Um, so how how involved was Scott? So Scott was this hero, but how involved was he in the development of the R one hundred one? So so Scott um, Scott as as a great national hero was. Of course, deeply involved in the, the the project, the Imperial Airship Scheme. R101 had a sister ship too, involved in how they were going to be flown, and he was in fact charge of flying and training of, of the ships. Uh, and interesting. I mean, he's he's an interesting character. He um, because there wasn't much for him to do after the war, and really in this interim period, um, he, he began drinking heavily. And by the time R101 is getting ready to go, he's he's uh, a pretty severe alcoholic, um, which makes it interesting because he's really got, he, he's he's not officially in command of R101, but he's got the call go or no go, which of course he makes. And he was more. probably drunk, and then he he seems to have walked straight out of an Agatha Christie mystery, and so has another of the characters, this first Baron Thompson, uh, the Right Honourable Lord Thompson, who headed up the project. Tell us about him. Yes, the man driving the Imperial Airship Scheme was uh, Christopher Birdwood Thompson, and he, in some ways, he's a perfect man for it. He's uh, he was a man of empire of five generations of uh, of the Raj. You know, his family were extremely prominent military figures in the Indian Army. Um, he came out of this. He ends up he he moves at, at, at a as a child to England, but he, he ends up kind of growing up in this tradition. He's, he's a lifer in the, in the military. He fights in all the great kind of campaigns of empire in South Africa and the Middle East and, and, uh, and, and World War One, And uh, he's the guy who's driving all this along. And it's interesting that it should be him, I guess, because of his background. Also, because as you as you pointed out, Ramsey McDonald was the first Labour government. And that was 1924, and uh, he was fr this guy Christopher Thompson, Lord Thompson, who's probably the main central figure in the book, was was best friends with Ramsey McDonald, who made him Secretary of State for Air, which is a title that I love. It's kind of Shakespearean, and 
And as Secretary of State for Air, Thompson becomes the kind of guy who drives this bad idea forward. And yeah, I wonder whether there's more Monty Python in this than Agatha Christie. Yeah. I, I mean, with some of these characters, they sound kind of absurd, parodies of, of, of British nincompoops. Did they have a quality or was Thompson actually quite a smart guy? So he is not your kind of classic kind of Python-esque upper class twit. No, I would say definitely not. He was he was very smart. He was talented. He was a, he was a, a, a phenomenal linguist. He spoke uh, French better in, than anybody else in the British Army, and he ended up having a big role as a translator at Versailles. Uh, he was actually a good writer, and he was a, a, a smart guy, and he was successful as Secretary of State for Air at a time when you know, the RAF was being challenged uh you know whether whether uh, he could have been that smart i mean he was at versailles which was a massive fuck up and then he fucked up this r 101 i'm sorry what was the uh yeah you say he was smart i mean maybe he wasn't quite john cleese but it sounds (laughs) like these people were profoundly misled or delusional about this technology as you say i mean was it quite well known the flaws of the technology um yeah, well, the evidence was there in front of them. I mean, the evidence of the, the numbers of crashes that had happened since the very first Zeppelins flew, it was almost all of them crashed. I mean, the numbers of crashes just in the 1920s before, I mean, the, a horrific British crash of R-38, 1921, horrific, you know, crash of, of an Italian-American airship, horrific crash of American airship onward, you know, it just, it never stopped. So, yes, he was going... Uh, against all the evidence and and this idea he was going to do and this will sound familiar to people who've read about the titanic but he was going to build something that was just so safe he called it as safe as a house except for the millionth chance which is a ridiculous idea it's an experimental prototype that he also says is going to be entirely safe and they're going to put all of their effort into safety and they're going to make these things safe and again it's a hydrogen filled airship how do you i mean yeah, it reminds me, I mean, leaving aside the Titanic, uh, the, the, our latest uh, tragedy, the Titan submersible implosion, it must have, in a way, a tragedy for the people on board, everyone seems to be obsessed with it, it must have reminded you of the RO1 disaster. It it, it did. Um, there's, you, you know, there, there are people who just ignore warning signs. And, and you know, it, it's, of course, true that technology, particularly transportation technology, you know, it's it's problematic in its early days. I mean, you know, the airplanes, you know, crash and crash and crash until the moment that they don't. Airships did the same thing. They crashed. Well, airships kept crashing. But you know, any sort of new technology it takes a certain amount of courage and or stupidity in its early days, right? Who wants to get on something that's going to crash? Well, there's always somebody who's going to do it. Um, in, in the case of airplanes, they 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 were. They had flaws, but they were fundamentally a sound design. You could fix things like, you know, the way engines worked on at altitude or wing loading and things like that. Airships were a bad idea. You could not fix their flaws. And what Thompson did not see that. Thompson just insisted that this was going to be great. It was going to be safe. He ignored all sorts of... of but, but Thompson was not a technologist, was he? He was a politician. No, no he, was not. he was a military guy. And didn't he, didn't he surround himself with? I mean, the, the British do have a tradition of strong technology and technologists, weren't there? Scientists who warned him. 
yes, there were warning signs all the way along. I mean, there were there was a lot of technology, you know, a lot of state of the art technology put into R101s, material science. I mean, they put diesels into the air for the first time. The reason because they had a lower flash point. And so when you got to the tropics, they wouldn't ignite the uh, the airship. They had these enormous harnesses that they built, super high tech that would hold the airbags in. I mean, it just went on and on. All the, the, the way that they pumped ballast through the ship and very, very high tech stuff. A lot of technology invested in a, in, in a wrong idea. So let's get to the heart or the tragedy of the story. The... Um... The, the tragic death of the world's largest flying machine. Um, t tell us about this, this tragedy, Sam. So what, so, so what R101, is going to, R101 is going to prove to the world that airships are the thing. And she's going to, with this, all this wild new technology, and she is going to fly from London to Karachi and back. And Lord Thompson is going to fly on the ship. He's going to fly and back, and he's going to step off the ship in London trailing clouds of glory, walk into the Imperial Conference and announce the new age. I bet he'd do it in French too. He <laughs> could do it in four languages. In uh, but he, uh, so this is what's happening. So on, you know, October, uh, you know, 4th, 1930, this thing takes off from Cardington, about an hour north of London, which is where it was built. Uh, Lord, Lord Thompson, by the way, was Lord Thompson of Cardington, and he's aboard, and kind of the cream of the British airship establishment is aboard. And, and gonna, again, it's a, there's a sort of a, a an Agatha Christie quality, not just that, but lots of glamorous people like a, a, a Romanian princess. There are always princesses in Romania who get on these kinds of disasters. She, Anna, wasn't, she wasn't aboard. She, was oh, not, she wasn't aboard, but she was somehow was, associated with it. Mark, was Martha Bibescu. Yeah, yeah, she was Thompson, Martha Vesky, she was Thompson's uh, a girlfriend, this uh, story, uh, fairy tale princess who was also the toast of literary Paris in the 19 you know, aughts. And uh, she, she's a wonderful part of the story, but she wasn't on board. Uh, I th her, so she her avoided food. it, and I assume that uh, a drunken Herbert Scott was, was, was captaining the ship. Yeah, he wasn't officially the captain, but he kind of thought he was, which was a big issue. <laughs> he had the so go. What, what, so, so uh, Sam, what could go wrong? Drunken captain. What, what could possibly go a wrong? Bimpy, uh, a bimpy bureaucrat who speaks <laughs> perfect French but doesn't know anything about science. Exactly. Um, what could possibly go wrong with this? Right. So they launch into a storm, which they shouldn't have done in October 4th. They're headed for Karachi, right? It's one stop in Ismailia, which is on the Suez Canal in Egypt. One stop. And, and this is what's going to happen. And so they take off. And there's this kind of ill-fated seven-hour flight that is kind of, you know, the, is the running front theme in, in my book. You kind of we follow what happens. It's, a, it's an eventful flight. What happens as this thing crosses the English Channel and then goes down about 80 miles north of, of Paris. Um, in, in a ball of flame, Ireland, I assume. Sorry? In a ball of flame. Yes, just like the Hindenburg. Uh, would have looked exactly like the Hind. Well, the, 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 the fireball would have. Uh, it was a horrendous thing. And what it did to the people on board, it basically carbonized them and melted them and horrified everyone. And, 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 but, of course, it, it was a fireball that no one saw. And if uh, one of the reasons or the main reason we've all heard of the Hindenburg is because that, that half a minute of film that was married in the 60s by a British producer to the sound, which was recorded separately, 
and you get the the horrible thing with the guy saying oh the humanity which was not together sound and video until the 60s but that's how we know there were a lot of those um r101 was one of the last and uh hindenburg was the last and how was it explained did they acknowledge they'd made i mean thompson was gone scott was gone but did the government uh, by then mcdonald wasn't still in power was he what was the british government in 1940 mcdonald uh, lasted uh, another year in power i think after that but he was they they pretty much whitewashed it they held they did an interesting thing they held a wonderful inquiry that was really tough and hard edge and if you read this thing at the national archives as i did in q it's hard hitting they're they're really they're really going at it and then taking the 700 pages of very fine print and converting it into a report that was essentially a whitewash saying, well, no one was really to be. Not the first or the last time that has happened, certainly in the UK. Uh, but it did kill the uh, the airship initiative in, in Britain. And that was it, the last... Dead. Killed it dead. Yeah, that was it. Um, and could you see it symbolically, at least, if, if you were writing a novel as the end of the 20s and the optimism, the beginning of the catastrophic 1930s? Uh, very much so. And I think it's very much bound up with the you know, sort of decline of, of, of the empire. I mean, it, it is an attempt to kind of get back British technological dominance, and it's a failure. And Britain would never again have that. And America was just roaring by um, Great Britain anyway in, in, in many of these other categories. And you see this kind of it seen in retrospect as kind of a a failed and somewhat desperate attempt to Although, uh, to, to, re, to regain or perhaps retain some of the old empire, if you will. But one of the um, it's not quite the last gasp of British technology. No, no, not the last. No, 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 no. Uh, one of the um, one of the the later chapters of this, which I personally remember as a child, was the the Concorde experiment, the Anglo. French initiative to build this very fast plane, which was successful for a while. And then the French, one of the French planes uh, crashed and that was the end of that. Uh, are there equivalents between the R101 and the Concorde? It's interesting. Uh, the Concorde was so successful for so long and it was, it, was, it was a very radical concept that you could fly supersonic, you know, across the ocean and do it at incredibly fast speed. I mean, until that crash, I was always astounded that this technology worked. Um, the airship, it's also, a, it, the thing itself is perfectly, I don't know what, I don't know anything about the crash or what went wrong, but the idea itself is perfectly sound as opposed to R101 where the idea itself is not sound and nobody should ever have been flying around in a hydrogen filled airship like that. I mean, no, it's- uh, Yeah, it's all it, making it, me- uh, It didn't work. I'm beginning to accept cramped united flights i think i'd rather be on a <laughs> it sounds looks better doesn't it? I, I mean i assume that the the experience the accommodation for example was like the orient express it was spacious and luxurious beautiful food all the rest of it it was indeed uh it was meant to be uh it was meant to approximate the the luxury of the great ocean liners it, which it couldn't really do of course because being lighter than air everything had to be fake right the, the great mahogany pillars were made out of balsa wood and light aluminum and linen and everything was kind of phony in a lot of ways but it looked great i mean you walk in and there was the dining room with the you know with the linen tablecloths and the, and the cocktail lounge and the promenade 
and the uh, smoking room. Uh, they had a smoking room on our one. It was meant to be the height of luxury in the air. And it was kind of meant to look like a cross between a, a Pullman car and an Admiral's quarters. But again, all kind of. Have you sold the film rights? I would think this would be a, a wonderful film. I know, not yet. Let's, well, here's hoping. Well, that's, uh, and finally, what about broader lessons on this? Not just for the British Empire in decline, but for all of us using these new technologies for new kind of travel. There was an interesting piece that the in Axios, the Titanic sub-tragedy stokes fears for space tourism. What should this warn the Elon Musks and Jeff Bezoses of the world, who are the new Herbert Scotts and Baron Thompsons of the world trying to forge new paths to new worlds? I think the... Uh... Well, there were a couple of lessons. One is that when when some project is being driven by nationalism, watch out. Mm. You know, that that is what drove von Zeppelin's early Zeppelins. Is what drove the great German Zeppelin effort was nationalism. Why did anybody keep persist with this idea? I would argue that it was British nationalism and then American nationalism, and everybody got burned by it. So in some level, don't listen to the little voice that says Deutschland über alles or whatever the British equivalent is. Uh, I would say maybe that. And also just listen to when, when people tell you that something is very wrong, listen to it. My book is a is a, a, a catalog of just people who didn't listen to everybody who told them it was going to be bad.